Welcome everyone to the DeFi Yield community. It is Michael here once again. We are very happy to have with us a professor, an expert uh, in macroeconomics, who is here to talk to us today about, well, we're going to discuss all kinds of different exciting things, but uh, he's quite active on Twitter and I've enjoyed following a bunch of his tweets. So Daniel, it's wonderful to have you with us. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Yeah, 100%. So maybe can you give us just a really quick background on you so that our viewers know who you are? Uh -huh. My name is Daniel Lacalle. Uh, I have a PhD in economics and I'm a professor of global economy at the IE Business School. I am also the chief economist at the Tresses Hedge Fund. And at the same time, I'm also the author of a number of books. You have them behind me, uh, Escape from the Central Bank Trap, freedom or equality, life in the financial markets, and the energy world is flat. Cool, cool. Sounds great. Sounds great. Well, I guess, you know, relevant to our conversations here, we're going to talk a little bit on some of your views on Bitcoin and digital currencies and kind of the state of, uh, of things from that standpoint. Maybe you could uh, give me a little bit of your summary of how you see what's taking place today. I know you've done... Uh, quite a number of tweets about kind of the state with, uh, well, what's going on with central banks and uh, inflation and things like this. So maybe just start off by giving uh, giving your overview as you see it. Well, I think that what we can uh, describe the current situation is as uh, a giant bubble, no? Mm -hmm. What we have is an economy that is uh, reopening and the reopening uh, is generating a certain level of inflation. But the biggest driver of inflation is monitoring. Uh, we see, for example, how commodities like aluminum, where there is plenty of overcapacity, are going up as fast as other commodities in which there are some supply constraints. Um, we are living a bubble not just in public debt, which is obviously very elevated, but also in markets where we can see that valuations are at all-time highs, net short exposure at all-time lows, uh, margin debt at all-time highs as well. So uh, we can say without, without a doubt that the global economy right now is in a much more fragile state than it was in 2008. It, the level of risk is higher and the level of uh, productivity growth, uh, GDP growth and job creation is weaker. Mm -hmm. Now, I noticed in one of your tweets, one of the things you had said was, uh, how did you put it? Something like, uh, there's no such thing as transitory inflation. Uh, yeah. I might be slightly misquoting you, but that basic, basic concept. So maybe can you kind of, obviously this is the narrative, right? And I can understand the reasons for having a transitory inflation narrative. Uh, and otherwise I'd love to hear what you have to say on it. Well, every citizen understands and everyone that is watching us or, or listening to us today can understand that inflation is compounded. Hmm? Yep. Therefore, when the Federal Reserve says that inflation is transitory, it is basically just uh, telling us that it will go year on year a little bit lower next year. Yes. However, the reality is that you and I or any other citizen, we are going to see the elevated levels of prices stabilize in the way in which they have grown so far and then right further. So when I say that there is no such thing as transitory inflation, what I'm basically saying is that uh, the way that inflation is calculated is year on year uh, additional growth, but the accumulative inflation that we yeah. will add from 2020 and 2021 to the burden of our pockets is significant. Yeah, yeah, makes sense, makes sense. I would definitely uh, see that. However, let's kind of, so would we say that uh, the 2008 financial collapse was a deflationary uh, event? The 2008, uh, the 2008 collapse was a deflationary event, absolutely, because it 
implied a massive reduction in the quantity of money. And at the same time, it implied a huge re-evaluation of the value of assets, no? Yep. So obviously it was disinflationary. What I find interesting is that uh, a very few years after 2008, in fact, by 2011, the inflationary process had already absorbed all of the disinflation seen in mm. 2008. Mm? So yeah. yes, the, the, the financial crisis, yes, was a disinflationary uh, process for a short period of time. Yeah. So, so from that standpoint then, because you're mentioning that we're in you know, a giant bubble, it's kind of, you know, some people are calling it the everything bubble. Uh, yeah. Conceivably bubbles pop, and would that likely mean that on the other end of this inflation could be a huge deflationary uh, or disinflationary event? Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Okay. Usually, cool. usually high inflation periods lead to afterwards uh, cooling off disinflationary process, no? And yep. particularly when inflation is not just CPI, as in consumer prices, yep. but uh, also asset prices. No? Yes. Yeah. Uh, obviously, if we see an abrupt uh, correction in markets, that definitely will be disinflationary. And it is very, very likely that because all of the forces that are trying to create inflation artificially are at the same time perpetuating overcapacity, that the disinflationary pressure will come from stagnation. Yeah, yeah. okay. Now, when we think about this, so maybe let's go in, because you mentioned the CPI side of things. So one of the disputes around inflation for sure is how it's measured. Uh, yeah. There's lots of people who will say, you know, CPI is a poor measure. You know, there's lots of different reasons for this. Some say because it's changing preferences, some, you know, different things aren't included in there, et cetera. How, can you speak to us about that uh, and kind of yeah. how it's measured and what real inflation would be and yeah, all these things? Well, I think that, you know, any citizen in America or any citizen in any developed economy, yeah. um, you tell them uh, that uh, the cost of goods and services that they purchase on a daily basis have not been going up or have been going down in the recent years, they will tell you, and rightly so, you're joking, right? Huh? Because the, the way in which CPI is measured is, is because or it's by creating a basket of yes. what is perceived as the uh, average goods and services uh, that an average household purchases. Mm -hmm. yep. But for example, if, as we saw in 2020, um, hotel prices are down 20, 30%, and uh, fresh food prices are up 7%, mm -hmm. um, then you have a problem because the, the things that you purchase on a daily basis are going up, and the yep. things that you purchase occasionally may be coming down. So mm -hmm. one, of the, one of the problems that I find with the calculation of CPI is the way in which technology is measured. No? Mm -hmm. yep. For example, you see uh, in, uh, that how technology is a huge disinflationary uh, pressure on CPI, yep. but obviously we don't purchase a phone or a computer every year mm -hmm. yep. uh, or every day, let alone every day. No? Yep. However, we do purchase every day fresh food, uh, utilities, healthcare, number of things. No, mm -hmm. yep. so uh, the the I, I always like to talk about the non-replicable goods and services, those things that we cannot avoid buying. Huh? Yeah. If I see a car and I find it very expensive, I can decide not to purchase that vehicle today. Okay. However, mm -hmm. I cannot decide not to turn on the lights and I cannot decide not to pay for healthcare yep. on, a, on a monthly basis. Yeah. Yeah. That makes, that makes a lot of sense. Just a quick question. I don't know whether you'll know anything about this or not, but I, I've watched some things and heard some talk. There's a, an economist, Pia Milani, uh, it's kind of heterodox uh, economist, and she and her husband did some work suggesting that basically the math behind how they calculate inflation 
simply can't calculate for changing preferences. And that you, know, you can do that using gauge theory, uh, which is another type of math. Are, are you familiar at all with this? Yeah, 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 yeah. Basically what they say is that the way in which CPI is calculated is flawed yeah. because they cannot, it cannot uh, incorporate at the exact period of time, the changes in preferences that we yeah. have, no? Yeah. For example, uh, last year, a lot of us were be not because of choice, but because there was no other option, no? Using yep. technology a lot more, no? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yep. So CPI doesn't calculate technology inflation. Uh, and therefore, the disinflationary, the, the, the real inflation in 2020 was actually significantly higher than what official CPI showed. No, mm -hmm. yeah. and there are, there are different uh, there are different ways in which you can look at whether inflation is uh, uh, whether the official inflation is correct or not. The first one, obviously, is it's called the the Big Mac index. No. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 You probably heard the cost of a Big Mac is the same all over the world, and the ingredients are the same. Yet yep. the price is different. No? Yeah. That is that in itself is a very very powerful uh, measure of yeah. the reality of inflation. No? There's also uh, shadow stats, I believe it's uh, it's called, uh, publishes a, a different uh, analysis of of official inflation using different weight that is more. Uh, akin to what consumers actually are using, no? And there are a number of studies that also differentiate inflation for the haves relative to the have-nots. So, oh, yeah. the relative, so the poor relative to the, the, the rich relative to the poor. Because yep. obviously for a rich person or somebody that's well off, uh, uh, rising food prices are not that relevant hmm? yep. um, uh, relative to the overall basket. But for a yep. person that well, rising food prices is everything, no? or, or, or the majority of food, no? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a really interesting thing in general is, uh, you know, I kind of try and think about it from a first principles standpoint. And it's like, okay, people who don't have much money, you know, they can't spend more regardless. So that's going to be what it's going to be. But as you have, I think when I think about the problems of inflation, it seems to me as though a big part of the concern is that that excess capital is flowing to a relatively small percentage of the population. And for those people, there's extremely high, you know, the price of your villa and Vazagaleta has gone up massively. And the price of financial assets, which are basically something that are purchased by, you know, wealthier people, asset owners, uh, are going up a lot. Uh, but that's not accounted for, it seems. It seems like those are the types of things that, uh, you know, we just focus on kind of the the standard goods. Is there some reason why they choose not to include uh, some of these other assets, et cetera, in there? It's a very good question. The reason why uh, the Federal Reserve and the central banks tend not to include asset prices is because they are perfectly aware that monetary policy and that uh, excessive money creation does generate huge inflation in asset prices. So if they included, instead of the 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 the, uh, the way in which they calculate housing, they calculated what you know what what the actual value of housing is going up, how how much it is going up, etc. Yeah. Uh, obviously, it would impact the their policy dramatically. Probably, what you would have if you included asset prices is an inflation gauge that is probably closer to seven eight percent per annum. Yeah, yeah. What, how do you think uh, this correlates to uh, the rise in the supply of money? And I'm curious actually to hear from you because I've heard some different things. So the M2 supply has increased a lot in the last year. Yeah. Um, now I've heard some different things about, okay, you know, there's more money on deposits. And, you know, if you kind of look at this, it's not actually like, hey, the money supply has exploded as much as some people would say. Uh, then I think there was something about the recharacterization of bank deposits and the effect on M1. Uh, what can you kind of shed light on in terms of, you know, what do those numbers really mean to us? What what kind of information can we garner from this increase in yeah. supply that M1 can do? Well, there is, there is, uh, there is a tendency nowadays yeah. 
for the people who defend central banks and their uh, massively expansionary policies to try to say to you in every possible way that money supply is not really growing. Yeah? Mm -hmm. So they, they say, oh, well, but you have to take away part of the of, of what is included in them too, et cetera, blah, blah, doesn't matter. You know, inflation is created when the supply of money is higher than the demand for money. This is the key part. It's not just supply, because it's, it's like any other thing, no? It's demand as well, no? 2020 was a critical year in this sense. Yeah. It was the first year in which central banks massively injected liquidity into the economy mm -hmm. when there was absolutely no problem of liquidity in the economy. Therefore, it was the first year, and that's why inflation is, is rising so fast with the reopening. It was the first year in which the, the, the level of money supply greatly exceeded demand. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I have always said about quantitative easing is that the Federal Reserve is the only central bank in the world that pays attention to global demand for dollars. It's the only one. I've worked with two, with two uh, ex in, in ex governors of, of the of the Federal Reserve, and it was the first year ever in 2020 in which the Federal Reserve for U.S. dollars. Surprisingly enough, 2021 we had soaring inflation. Mm -hmm. Yes, obviously, obviously, and when you have commodities in which there is a supply constraint going up 50%, and you have commodities in which there is oversupply going up 40, then you know that it's a monetary effect. Inflation is always a monetary effect, but in this particular case, it is extremely evident because the, the, ten, the, the, the trend in every single uh, part of the, asset, of the, of the pricing of, of goods and services is the same regardless of overcapacity or undercapacity. If you break down the uh, basket of goods, I mean, you definitely see, for example, in used cars, the uh, the price yeah. increases have been, you know, dramatic in there, and then you know, not so much in some other areas. So, yeah. sorry, how does that reconcile with your your statement about uh, it's kind of across the board? Uh, well. First is, it's pretty evident when you look at the trend, okay? Mm -hmm. The second is that you, uh, I come back to the, to, to the non-replicable goods and services. Now, you have very evident increase in prices of public services, increase in prices of so many other things. Now, it's not just energy or a couple of things like that. Um, so, the, the problem I have with that assessment is the following, is if it's transitory and if it's due to supply constraints, yeah. the base effect and the supply constraints basically are behind us. So the July CPI should have been significantly lower, not just lower, not just flat, but significantly lower, and it wasn't. No, mm -hmm. uh, the other element that I find disingenuous uh, mm -hmm. is to say that it's due to supply chain disruptions. When, for example, you have uh, zinc or uh, sugar or coffee or uh, aluminum, where there's massive overcapacity globally going up at the same time, no? So, uh, so yes, it is a monetary effect. And we will see a reduction precisely because of monetary effect as well, when there is some tapering. But the vast majority of the increase of 2020 and 2001 doesn't, it, it doesn't uh, sort of round trip. It makes exactly the same, no? So, I mean, the counter argument, of course, that uh, gets brought up quite a bit, I'd love to hear from you on, is they'll say, well, you know, there was huge QE and huge money printing uh, in Japan uh, following 1990. Uh, obviously, their debt to GDP levels way exceed everything else in the, in the world. 
uh, and yet they haven't seen inflation. Uh, what's kind of, how, how do you view that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, first, everyone that says that has never lived in Japan. Okay, so you ask any, Jap you tell any Japanese person about this inflation, uh, they're very civilized people and they're very gentle, but they would hit you. They, they would hit you. What the hell are you talking about disinflation? Have you ever lived in Japan? It's a joke. So that, that is the first thing. Is, is Again, I come back to the official calculation. Okay, There has never been disinflationary pressures in Japan. However, massive money creation in Japan is regurgitated into government debt. And the, the yen is a distant cousin of the dollar because households save a lot and companies import a lot of US dollars. So in reality, what you have is a system in which all the money creation goes to government debt. That government debt goes to pension funds, real wages and the, the value of those savings disappear. So you have inflation because real wages are coming down despite the fact that the prices are not rising dramatically because inflation is not just prices going up, it's purchasing power of the currency. It's purchasing power of the currency. So when real wages are down almost every year as we have seen for a decade in Japan, then you have a huge problem as you do, because then what you have is that the is that consumers basically just cannot spend more, they cannot save. It, it's much more complicated, no? Interesting. So you're saying the purchasing power of people is going down. Uh, yeah. and this is partially a function of wages going down over the last decade. Um as much as it is a real price wages, real wages. Mm -hmm. real wages, real wages, real wages, real wages is is the key. Okay, because you know one of the problems that we find in consensus ways of talking is, oh, but Japan has very low unemployment. Okay, very low unemployment. Everything's going well. Two hundred and something debt to GDP. So what is the problem? Well, the problem is that real wages are down. And prices rise, they don't rise 5%, they rise 1%, they rise 1%, uh, 1%. but if, you, if, you're, if you're constantly eroding the purchasing power of wages and salaries, then of wages and, and, and savings, then that is inflation the same way. See what I mean? But isn't, so, I mean, okay, so if we look at the definition of inflation, we're looking, so if people's, purchasing power, like let's look at 2008. 2008, people's purchasing power went down because their wages dropped a lot, uh, but it was deflationary. But again, deflationary, the concept is that prices year on year come down, okay? Yes. Yeah. That's fine. Yeah. But if prices, for example, in the Eurozone, you have yeah. 2011 to 2013, yeah. prices are coming down. You say yeah. there's, this, there's this inflation. Right. Yep. However, if wages are coming down much faster, then there's no inflation. There is no disinflation. That is inflation. See what I mean? So I mean, I, my, I, I guess I, it's I, not if, how people would normally Spanish, think about it. Yeah, if I'm a Spanish and Italian, a uh, 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 a Portuguese citizen, okay, yeah. and year on year prices fall 0.1 percent, but yeah. year on year salary goes down 10 percent what's the inflation rate minus 0.1 percent or plus 9.9 percent i mean i think that normally we measure uh inflation just on the cost side we don't look at that's the income exactly. side. that is the point that i'm trying to make yeah. the point that i make is that one of the flawed ways of yeah. looking at inflation and yeah. particularly the and particularly the drive to combat this inflation yeah. is not to look at wages. Mm. So basically, what you're focusing on is uh, more about the welfare of people. Power. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah, the power of, of salaries and savings. Makes sense. Makes sense. So, so let's talk about that. 
So what do you think, I'm sure you've given a lot of thought to this subject, what do you think should be done in, uh, in these situations? What, what is the root cause of the problems that we have with you know, declining purchasing power? And I think we can probably agree that broadly speaking, uh, minusing the effects of technology, uh, purchasing power has you know, been going down quite a bit for quite a while for a large percentage of the population. Yeah, well, it's, it's very simple. When you're trying to consistently and constantly disguise fiscal imbalances through monetary and fiscal policy, inevitably, as well-intentioned you may be, the largest chunk of the population, which is the middle class, yeah. is going to pay for it. Yeah. See, and, and it doesn't matter how, how if you're right-wing, if you're left-wing, if you're, no, no, no. It, you know, if what you're doing is, this is the economy, these are the fiscal imbalances of the government, and I'm passing, and I'm, and I'm trying to create inflation to sort of dissolve part of those fiscal imbalances. And at the same time, through taxation, I'm trying to uh, reduce those fiscal imbalances inevitably by, by pure, pure logic of mathematics, you will, you are going to erode the, the part of the economy that saves, which is the middle class. Yeah, but on the other hand, isn't part of the idea to incentivize reinvesting as opposed to saving? That is a great question because we have been told over and over again in very recent times, by the way, very, very recent times, when I was at university, they didn't say that, that what we need to do is incentivize consumption and, and spending no matter what. Hmm? Spending and investment, even if it's malinvestment. No? Yeah. The strength, the strength of come from savings and prudent investment. Mm -hmm. If you reward if you reward saving, mm -hmm. yep. consumption is actually much more stable. Consumption growth is more stable. It doesn't come from increases in access to credit and uh, uh, in, in, an indebtedness, no? So, and the same with investment. You know, yep. the, the reason why we see bubbles is because there is massive incentive to malinvest in one part of the economy. And then uh, uh, that, that leads to elevated valuations and then into the asset or that part of the economy falls and then you burst the bubble, no? But, yeah. but the economy is not based on that and should have, and, and by the way, was never based on that, has always been based on prudent saving and prudent investment. No? Mm -hmm. So you incentivize prudent savings and prudent investment, you disincentivize malinvestment and you disincentivize excessive indebtedness. But when you have one economic agent, the state, that benefits from malinvestment and uh, over indebtedness because yeah. GDP doesn't capture uh, whether you're uh, investing uh, badly or properly, it just captures that you spend and that you invest. And it doesn't even uh, capture if you're doing it with massive levels of debt because yeah. GDP doesn't, doesn't show the, any adjustment because of debt, no? Yeah. So yeah. the government in all of its metrics is using GDP to me as a measure and GDP in itself, it's easily and artificially bloated by increasing debt and malinvestment. Yeah, 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 makes sense. Makes perfect sense. So what do you think uh, like, is the root cause of this? Is this, uh, you know, or does this mean central banks are bad? Does, is this an intrinsic oh. function of the monetary system? What's, uh, what, how do you, how do you oh. characterize the root causes of this problem? Now, central banks, it's not that central banks are, are bad or, are, or need to disappear or, no, it's, it's, it's a system of, it's the problem of incentives and disincentives, no? Yeah. You have a system in which you have that, that through legislation and taxation yep. incentivizes overspending and indebtedness, you're going to have an overcapacitized 
weak economy with low productivity and high debt by definition no it's like yeah. i don't know it's like imagine you're you're the uh, the the leading parent in a household whether it's you or your wife and you have two kids one is a good uh, student the other is a bad student you give more money to the bad student than to the good student what is the good student going to do yeah. so it's a question of incentives and so so aren't those incentives kind of intrinsic in the fact that you have a central bank that can create money no not necessarily you had a central bank for numerous decades that did that did not necessarily uh, disguise the risk of uh, of of government uh, financing and government uh, uh, public finances through monetization no so, so in my opinion yeah. the, in my opinion everything started to go pear-shaped if you want to call it like that <laughs> yeah. when central banks lost the independence and and, and went from having uh, a system in which there was a level of in which the, the policy measures were dictated by data to being uh, discretionary huh? so now, you used to, I remember vividly when the ECB, look, inflation has gone to above three and a half percent. We yeah. increase interest rates. Mm -hmm. That's what we do. No. Yeah. When did it become discretionary? When did central banks decide, oh, but we have to think of climate change and we have to think of, uh, uh, and we have to tell governments to spend more as 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 lagarde has done no mm -hmm. so i think that it's the loss of independence of central bank the critical part of a central bank's uh role as a provider of liquidity is precisely being independent from government because if it if it if it incentivizes massive government spending and huge deficits governments are going to i mean run that to the ground yeah. Of, course. of course. If you tell me, if you tell me, Daniel, there is no risk in you overspending, I will overspend. You know, oh heck, it's a, forget about it's risk. A, if you just tell me yeah. I'm allowed to overspend, I mean, you know, great. Absolutely. You know? So the problem became when it became discretionary. And it was very, very few years ago. It wasn't even we're not even talking so, so what caused that change to happen like if it was discretionary or it wasn't discretionary then it was like was there some legislative change that made that happen was it simply like what what happened in there to cause that to switch i think that the in developed economies after the after the the chain of crisis in the in emerging economies in the 2000s in the early 2000s and the dot-com bubble mm -hmm. developed economies uh saw the perverse incentive of passing their monetary imbalances to the rest of the world hmm? Hmm. the u.s so the u.s can uh, export inflation to the rest of the world Yep. And China can export disinflation to the rest of the world. And I, I basically think that it's when the this school of neo-Keynesian uh, economists started to take control of international bodies mm -hmm. in which you had people that started to basically say, well, the basic rules of uh, the monetary and the fiscal system uh, are too tight. And there's absolutely no problem in government spending as long as borrowing rates are low, no? Mm -hmm. And it, it actually came from what you mentioned before, Japan, no? Is that the, the, the experiment of Japan led to people, some people saying, oh, that's not a bad idea. It's got low unemployment, very high debt, it doesn't grow, but who cares? No? Mm -hmm. So isn't that an almost an intrinsic part, though? Like, I, I guess sometimes I look at things as, you know, you set the base uh, variables and then there's emergent properties that develop from there. And, yeah. you know, so it's like you've got, I mean, maybe it took them a while to realize that, oh, hey, we can export our inflation to the rest of the world. But the fact that they could do it was intrinsically going to lead in that direction at one point or another. Yeah. Well, it will. Absolutely it will. Yes. 
So from that standpoint, uh, if you were to redesign the system, how would you yeah. redesign it? To be well, I don't. I, I wouldn't redesign it. How? Okay. There's no need. This is the key problem. The key problem is that we are being told the following. The following narrative is mainstream right now. It's this or nothing. And the evil people like uh, Judy Shelton or Daniel Lacaye or I don't know, or so many, or Peter Schiff, those people are basically telling you that central banks should do nothing. Absolutely false. First, there is no need to redesign anything. Central banks just need to go back to what they've always done, which is to have a tailor-based rule, a tailor uh, in which uh, be data dependent and be very, very clear about the, their independence from excessive government spending. So I find it absolutely appalling to hear a governor of a central bank telling a government that they need to spend more. It makes absolutely no sense, no? Mm-hmm. And the problem is that central banks have become, have, have, are now run by politicians huh? or by people that are so entrenched in the same, uh, in the same things that politicians want that there is no dis- discernible difference between the two objectives, no? So, uh, so do I need to redesign the system? No, I need it. I want it to be what it is supposed to be, which is an independent central bank hmm, that looks at data, that acts because of data, and that becomes the the provider of liquidity of last resort, not of first resort. See what I mean? Big difference. It's a big difference. The big difference to let markets function. And if there is a problem of liquidity to, to, to be there in order to stabilize markets, then to be the provider of first resort. So the thing that I'm struggling with in this is, yeah. you know, clearly the system had these incentives which led it to where it is today. Sure. And so what I don't see is how, aside from, you know, having people take on discipline, which I think is not a very sustainable or scalable solution, uh, how you can maintain that, uh, that central bank independence, given the structural incentives that are in place within this system. Um, obviously, you have to take hard, you have to make difficult decisions. You know, it is difficult. Of course it is. Yeah. It is much easier to, to, to pass the problem to the next generation. Very easy. That's super easy. But ultimately, both a central bank governor or a representative of a central bank, first, the representatives of a central bank, it's dangerous to see the level of unanimity that there is right now on every single decision. It makes no sense. Why do you have different governors? They're all saying the same thing, no? But, but ultimately, it's about making hard choices, which, which exist precisely because both the monetary authorities and the fiscal authorities know that if you don't implement those measures early on, the impact later on is much larger. Mm-hmm. You see, so, yeah. so you know, yeah, it is difficult, but uh, you know, you don't choose a career in politics or in uh, finance for it to be easy. You choose it to, to do the right thing. No? I mean, I guess I never really think that it's a very, like I said, I don't think that it's sustainable or scalable to expect people to do the right thing in the absence of incentives to get them to do the right thing. So I feel as though if you want to maintain that, you know, it's like, you look at- no. but that is, that is, that is, I mean, not, not what you're saying, but there's, that is a simplification because for example, why do businesses overall reduce credit impulse despite massive money supply growth and low rates? Why do households decide not to take more credit 
despite very low rates and ample access to credit. No, they decide it because they take a level of responsibility. They might decide it late, they might decide it wisely or unwisely, but they do, no? And they do because they have a level of responsibility. So if households, businesses- I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not persuaded that it is- government in the world. So why, why it's interesting to see that because we've had a lot of governments, a lot of, you know, Germany is a clear example in which despite all the incentives to do the opposite, they have been prudent. No? Why is that? Because citizens, citizens demand it. So it is all about the civil society at the end. See what I mean? So this is an interesting, uh, interesting question. Um, and I don't know as much about, you would probably know about the situation in Germany quite a bit, uh, quite a bit more than I would. I look at the situation in the US and it seems to me that the amount of money in politics drives a lot of this. Yeah. Uh, you basically have a situation where lobbying efforts incentivize uh, these people to uh, basically behave in such a way that it, it's kind of a tragedy of the commons situation. They go yeah. and, you know, like if I'm a politician, I want to get reelected. That's my incentive. And if I am sitting there behooven to lobbyists who are going to pay hundreds of millions of dollars for my campaign to help me get reelected, well, then what I'm naturally going to do is I'm going to do what it is that they ask for, which is mm -hmm. I have, you know, I can spend money without accountability, basically. Uh, which can get funneled towards those lobbying groups. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this creates this cycle. Is it in, in Germany, is money play the same role in politics? Is lobbying as significant? How does that factor in? It does, the, but there is a point in which obviously, you know, what you basically, to summarize what you're saying is that because the system is corrupted, it will always be corrupt. Yeah? Mm -hmm. But I guess what I'm saying is that there are, I think that it's bad when somebody can spend money without consequence. I don't absolutely. think that's a good thing. Yeah. Absolutely. But it all comes down to the civil society. Do you see if we as voters or as uh, citizens reward bad behavior, politicians, politicians just act to the incentives that they are, that they receive from voters. So if I, am an, if I am a politician and I say that I'm going to be fiscally prudent and there's another politician that says I'm going to increase the deficit by a trillion uh, on top of what there is today and uh, uh, people vote for him, my friend, it's our fault. Sure, it's not sure. the lobby. It's not the lobbies. It's not the central bank. It's the voters. Well, except that, of course, you know, it's kind of the, uh, the old story, you know, he who robs Peter to pay Paul can always count on the support of, Pete, of Paul. And uh... not necessarily. We have seen, I'll give you a number. There are not so many examples Ireland, Luxembourg, Holland, uh, Denmark, Germany, uh, uh, Chile. Um, uh, just I'm, I'm thinking randomly. No, Uruguay. Um, so many countries all over the world in which, uh, and you might say, oh, well, those don't matter because what we care is about the United States and the Eurozone. Maybe. But ultimately, ultimately, the United States has uh, been, at least from the civil society, has been, uh, has changed its mind about fiscal prudence, more or less since the 2000s, not before. Yeah, that's probably, probably some truth to that. I mean, kind of the last time they were uh, running a surplus this. budget. Think about this, okay? You may have run a deficit, but yeah. tell me one single Democrat or Republican candidate that could have gone to elections successfully with the monster spending and deficit program that in this particular case, the Democrats, but I don't care, but let's forget about partisan or, by, or, 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 or with the monster deficit program that uh, Biden came or that Trump came with. Mm -hmm. So there's something happening in civil society. 
that's the interesting. Thing that's and the thing that is happening in civil society is that they actually are starting to believe that money is free. Mm-hmm. But it's civil society because if if not even Reagan or uh, or Carter or uh, you name it or or, or Obama. Obama came with a very strict fiscal uh, program. He then did something else. None of them could win an election saying, I'm going to drive the deficit to trillions. Yeah, yeah, I see what you're saying. And now it's the first time in history in which in an election, I have heard from my friends in the United States, oh, but money doesn't matter. Well, there you go. It's your problem then. You, you, You know... Do you think that this is partially, so when we can compare, you know, like you mentioned, Ireland, Luxembourg, Germany, uh, these are countries that don't have their own currency. They're, uh, they're under the euro, and so there's kind of some removal uh, between them and basically the, the faucet of being able to print money. Do you think that makes any difference? Uh, it does, actually. It does. It does, because... Um, you you have uh, you have all those things. Um, you have all those things in the in civil society that you know. You perceive that something you know you know. People are not economists. They don't need to be economists. Okay. Yep. However, if you hear from people who are allegedly experts, that nothing matters, that deficits don't matter, that debt doesn't matter, and that money creation is free. Hey, you know, a Nobel Prize winner told me, well, you know, that Nobel Prize winner is not going to suffer the consequences, okay? Mm -hmm. But think about this. In South Korea, they went the opposite way of Japan precisely because of Japan's policies. In uh, the Asian countries, they went the opposite way of China precisely because of China's policies. In Chile, in Uruguay, in, uh, uh, in Colombia, in Costa Rica, in El Salvador, they went the opposite way of Argentina, Venezuela, Mexico, and Brazil precisely because of that. So people are not that stupid. And what we need the, 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 the US citizen at some point is to be fairly, to be blunt, to start being more aware of the risk to the U.S. dollar of what they're doing. I mean, what That's what it. you're saying uh, seems to imply to me almost that uh, you know there's that expression: you can either be a great example or a horrible warning. And uh, you know, they uh, they need a, a horrible warning. Um, this is great. I appreciate uh, appreciate you sharing this. And in particular, the thing about civil society is really interesting. Uh, interesting insight. Yeah. Uh, we're almost out of time, but uh, what are your thoughts on digital currencies and uh, and everything that's going on in that respect? Well, that again, that is the same. It's it's it's. Uh, 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 digital currencies are in the same situation as you know as any other you, you know bitcoin is a, obviously a response to this monetary insanity Absolutely. but central bank digital currencies are another step towards even higher monetary insanity yeah okay? makes sense yeah. okay uh, so digital currencies if they continue to uh, uh, be some kind of shelter from monetary insanity, they might become uh, an alternative. But right now, they're startup currencies. Yeah. They're not yet currencies. They're not, they're not units of measure, reserve of value, and widely accepted means of payment, which is what you need to do. No? So that is on its way, but it's not yet there. No? And you know, I think that's what if central banks don't learn from the lesson of the, the, the level of risk that is happening right now, uh, digital currencies and Bitcoin, et cetera, dependent currencies will rise. So do you think that the, so, you know, we have kind of these opposite characteristics, right? Bitcoin scarce in the sense that it has 21,000 max supply, 
then you know no max supply and lots of uh, lots of printing on let's just use the US dollar as an example but it's you know pretty much every currency out there um, do you think that the incentive structures of uh, Bitcoin being disinflationary uh, are likely to prevent it from gaining widespread adoption because hey who wants to spend something that is going to go up in value over time and then as a result of the fact that it's going up in value, why would I want to price probably most importantly my debt in uh, in that currency if I know that that debt is therefore going to be higher in the future? Well, the main point about that is that uh, the is that there is a point. You see, the dis the 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 debt reduction from inflation. Is, is, is a train that is because the because there is absolutely no way no way in which you get uh, the the reduction in debt that uh, would come from inflation inflationary pressures when deficit spending rises well above in sure. so the point is um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, if they continue the same way, monetary authorities and fiscal authorities are going to get into a Japanese stagnation or a European stagflation mm -hmm. uh, situation. Absolutely, they will. But I think that we're smarter than that, and we should be, and we should warn about it. So... Just a curiosity, what is the difference between the stagflation and the stagnation? You mentioned the stagnation in uh, Japan. You have no economic growth or very little economic growth and yep. high inflation. Yep. Stagnation is just low, low to no economic growth. Okay. Okay. So that's the difference between the two. All right. Sounds, uh, sounds good. Okay. Interesting. Um, and so uh, you think that over time, it's probably not likely that some sort that we won't sort these things out. That the uh, the central bank system we can kind of learn from where it is, and uh, let's see how it, basically the civil society can observe these lessons as we make them. We're probably going to make some uh, big yeah. mistakes. We're probably going to have a big bubble burst. Let me, let me ask you. Let me tell you one one. Let me just interrupt you and tell you one thing. Sure. Why do you think that the Germans? are culturally against inflation. It's not because they are different, it's because yeah. they have suffered hyperinflation. Yeah, yeah. You know I mean? Why do yeah. you think that the Chileans are culturally against inflationary policies? Because they suffered hyperinflation with Allende. So What's the explanation then though for some ways like Argentina, I mean, Argentina seems to have had a hundred years of, you know, repeated problems, yeah. I don't know, 13 uh, defaults on their debt or whatever it is. Well, the, the situation, you know, there was, there was an economic, uh, there was a, an, an economics Nobel Prize winner who said that there are four types of economy, developed, okay. development, Japan, and Argentina, okay? <laughs> and, it was not a, and, it, and, and there's a point to it, is yeah. that, they have very specific reasons. What's the this situation in Argentina? The situation in Argentina is that the fiscal and monetary policy is confiscatory and extractive because it expels the productive fabric of society out of the country. Mm. So you have hundreds of thousands of Argentinians all over the world that are super bright, incredibly talented people, very, very, very wise people that, that, that simply have given up on their country. And what is left is you have, uh, you have uh, too much, a very aggressive political uh, group that is that, and, and people that depend on political spending that simply extract from the economy. Huh? But that actually can also change. But in any case, it's a unique, uh, it's a unique country. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, it's always a, a bizarre case. I have a, a very good friend, client, investor 
uh, I know who makes the comment that Latin America is where capital goes to die. So it's, uh, they seem to. Have well, been. pretty much. But ultimately, you know, it, it ultimately what we, what we, you know, it's very easy to say that everything is, is, is to blame, that central bankers are to blame or the government is to blame or, or both, no? Yeah. But ultimately, ultimately, if you have a society uh, as you do in Switzerland, many countries actually is it's it's it's. I like the idea of of running through the list of countries in which the this print money bullshit is not bought by the by the population. Um, but but ultimately, if people don't buy it, you cannot sell it. Hmm? So maybe I'll, I'll end with this question. Uh, so kind of, you know, there's various different schools of thought and you have kind of the, I don't know, we'll call it the Austrian school of thought where they're very much about this idea of hard money and constrained supply, uh, gold reserved, gold backed uh, currency, very similar, you know, uh, the scarce or limited supply of Bitcoin, this whole thing. Why is it important that we are able to expand the monetary, the monetary supply and that we Not don't have... It is not important. We have seen no increase in money supply uh, uh, in for many, many decades, and there was no problem whatsoever. The, why is it important? Because when you have uh, a society that is that has been uh, in which economic alleged growth has been based on credit and uh, spending and not on saving and prudent investment, then obviously money supply growth is a key factor. Hmm? Um, but you know, I, I come back to the point, I never like to talk about money supply growth. I like to talk, to talk about money supply growth above demand. Hmm? Hmm. What is the, what do you, well, you know, because the concept of you can lead the horse to water, but it won't drink if it's not thirsty. Hmm. It's, it's a fact. You know? So what do you need? As a customer, as a as a as a household, as a business, to 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 progress, to to take a little bit of credit in order to the home, to take a little bit of credit in order to grow the business. That's fine, no problem in that money supply growth. The yeah. problem is supply leading demand. The problem mm -hmm. is what comes from the central bank deciding what it should, what demand should be. You see what I mean? Yeah. So if you if you demand, and then there is obviously the, 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 the process of credit creation, the process of, of, of you know, and central banks uh, uh, participate there as provider of, 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 of liquidity of last resort. There's no problem whatsoever in that process. Mm. But and there's a problem is when you subvert the order and you put supply first and demand last. Oh, yeah. So you would say then that... Uh if the money supply grows in relation to the demand, which would be pretty typical in particular in a growing population, right? As you're kind of advancing, there's more and more people with more and more resources, et cetera, that it's healthy to have uh, growth within that, uh, that band. Um, but then, and perhaps if you were to restrict it at that point in time, it was actually have a negative effect because it would prevent that growth from continuing. Um, yeah, but again, I come back to the point. It, it that's why we have an independent banking system, and why we should have an independent central bank, in order precisely to make the the, the credit demand process work as uh, as a, as as backstops to runaway inflation. It's it's when you when you merge government central bank and the banking system into an entity into a, a sole entity with one single purpose which is to uh, to disguise the imbalances of government via inflation that's when you have the problem I, you don't have a problem you know you don't have a problem because if the central bank increases money supply but lowers rates but the banking system through demand does not increase credit that's fine what's the problem there no no now what is the problem is that if you continue because what you're doing that is that all that excess money goes to financial assets see what mm -hmm. i mean yeah and then great bubbles yeah so money, money goes inflation is created where money goes and right. and if you put supply of money first and yeah. demand, yeah. demand grow 
you think that people are stupid or that they're not behaving and that you need to nudge them, that's when you create the problem. Great. Well, thank awesome. you for taking the, uh, taking the time to share. For those of you who are interested, we're going to put the links to uh, Daniel's books in, uh, in the description here. So you can check it out. And you should also go and follow him on Twitter. Daniel, I appreciate you taking the time today to talk to us and kind of share, uh, share your explanations and your comments, et cetera. So yeah, thank you very much. Thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure and a, and a riveting conversation. Great questions, by the way. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Well, Have a good thank day. you very Bye. much. And uh, everyone give the video a thumbs up, share it with your friends, and we will see you guys on the next video.